Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Today is December 27th, 2022. And if you're with me on this quiet, silent week between Christmas and New Year's, it's to learn something and talk a little bit about medical provider claims in New Jersey. Uh, attendance is light today so far, so if you've got questions, please type them in and I will answer them at the end. Um, I'm hiding my face from you today because I've been not feeling so great, so unfortunately it will be spared uh, from my, uh, my face staring at you, but let's dive into our topic. Uh, we're going to talk about what medical provider claims are in New Jersey, what kind of discovery are, is allowable and why you want discovery. We're going to talk about how to handle these cases from the defense perspective. I'm going to talk a little bit about cross-jurisdictional medical provider claims. I'm going to talk a little bit about how we expect the litigation, which is wending its way through the system, will change the way we defend these cases in the future. So let's talk generally about medical provider claims. These are claims brought by medical providers who claim that they are were not paid enough for the medical treatment they provided to your workers' compensation claimant. Um, these are specifically allowed under an amendment to the statute, which occurred in 2012, uh, which changed the medical treatment statute to indicate that medical providers had a direct claim against insurance carriers or employers uh, for reimbursement of medical payments that they claim are underpaid. And that's generally what we see here. Generally, it's a claim of underpayment rather than a lack of payment. Internally and at the Division of Workers' Compensation, these are called MPCs, Medical Provider Claims. There is no actual petitioner in a medical provider claim. The medical provider is referred to as the applicant. So when I talk about this, I will use the term petitioner or claimant or applicant all interchangeably. The main dispute in a medical provider claim is how much money the provider is due. Uh, and it's whether that provider is due that money. Um, if there is a workers' compensation accepted established claim, the proper avenue for a medical provider to seek additional payment or reimbursement is by intervening in the workers' compensation case. So when you have a medical provider claim, it's also usually a claim that uh, this treatment was not properly authorized by the respondent as well. There is a six-year statute of limitations, which is really problematic. And the reason they're problematic is that the statute of limitations in these cases uh, will typically exceed uh, the length or the life of the workers' compensation case. Remember, in a workers' compensation claim in New Jersey, the statute of limitations is two years from the date the petitioner was injured or two years from the date they last received compensation, which could be payment of a medical bill. But still, there is a statute of limitations in a workers' compensation case in New Jersey, which is essentially two years from the date of last treatment that was authorized or last payment. But these claims have a six-year statute of limitations from the date the medical care was provided, which means your workers' compensation claim could be filed, medical treatment could be resolved, both sides can move to permanency, and the case ultimately settled before these medical provider claims are even brought forward. So you've got to be vigilant about when these provider claims can be asserted. The applicant has the burden to establish that the treatment was related to a workers' compensation injury. 
again, this burden is there is even if the petitioner never filed an underlying claim, um, even if there was no workers' compensation reported injury. And we are seeing this happen increasingly in the context of COVID-19 claims and COVID-19 deaths, where a claimant, um, I'm sorry, where an injured worker, or I'm sorry, just an, a worker uh, got COVID-19, when it received medical care at the hospital, they expire, um, never bring a worker's compensation case, and then two or three years later, it's happening now, med uh, uh, hospitals are bringing forth giant bills for those final hospitalizations and claiming that they're compensable under the workers' compensation law. Uh, so there is no underlying workers' compensation claim there. The medical provider is bringing a claim directly on their own. And so the medical provider has the authority to file these claims, whether or not the injured worker actually files their own workers' compensation claim. And so you can start to see how these can be tremendously problematic. The medical provider has to show or allege that treatment was actually provided to an actual injured worker and that the injured worker could have brought a New Jersey workers' compensation claim. They also have to set forth the amount in dispute. And you will often see on the medical provider claims, they're all using sort of a very similar format. Uh, there is no set form that a medical provider claim must file in New Jersey, but they all seem to be using a very similar format, which is a template that was published by the Division of Workers' Compensation. And if you look at this slide, um, you can see this slide is saying, what is the date of treatment? and what's the amount billed. And, and I actually pulled this one on purpose. I pulled this um, example from one of my cases on purpose because this really kind of shows you the type of thing you see in a medical provider claim in New Jersey. Here you have a bill from a surgeon and a co-surgeon for a surgery. And the surgery took place on a specific date. That's the date billed, or the date of treatment, excuse me. You can see the amount billed. And both the surgeon and the co-surgeon each bill uh, over $180,000 for this relatively straightforward surgery, which took just a few hours. And then you can see the amount paid. It was $21,000 roughly to the surgeon and significantly less to the co-surgeon. And the difference is what gives rise to the medical provider claim. And again, this is not an atypical case where uh, there's a $360,000 plus bill uh, and something less than $30,000 paid in total on it, and that's the dispute. So you can see enormous sums in dispute in these cases. Now, to point out how you can avoid some of this, it's building out your medical provider network. Because the medical provider claims are alleging, essentially, that they are due the usual and customary rate for the treatment that they provided. In the example from the prior slide, that they surgeon and co-surgeon are due $360,000, and they're claiming that's what is usual and customary in this jurisdiction. Well, the way you get around that typically is to build your own medical provider network, or most of my clients are renting a network or borrowing a network or contracting with a network provider. And most of our clients are using some type of vendor solution. What we've seen with those vendor solutions is greater than 90% penetration. Uh, most physicians will fall under that network um, agreed to rate. And so having this kind of um, a vendor network in, in place will help you prevent these medical provider claims. The big challenge in New Jersey is where there is no contract. So you've got the claimant who um, maybe did not seek any authorization 
never file a workers' compensation claim. Maybe they needed emergent care. Think about a COVID-19 case where uh, maybe the person contracts COVID. They just go to the local hospital. They're not thinking, hey, I should contact my employer. We should go to the provider that's in network. And then the provider just provides treatment and just runs up the hugest bill they can, they can run because the statute says the amount they will be paid is, quote, uh, amount that shall be reasonable and based on the usual fees and charges which prevail in the same community for similar physicians, surgeons, and hospital services, close quote. So the hospital or the medical treatment provider or often the ambulatory surgery center is not wrong for doing what they're doing, which is providing care and then worrying about who they're going to bill to it later, uh, particularly in the context of emergent care. Where this gets predatory or predacious is in the context of what I've seen, a lot of ambulatory um, medical services where the physician is on purpose directing the employee uh, to go get treatment there for the purpose of running up big bills. So the question that comes after this application is filed, this medical provider claim is filed, is what are usual fees and charges and how much should we be responsible for? And that comes down to the court. The court has the authority to determine the usual fees and charges. And there is some non-precedential case law in New Jersey, uh, judge-made law, trial-level decisions, that describe how the judge of compensation is supposed to weigh the sides or weigh the arguments or the claims and come up with a, um, a reasoned position. So the judge is supposed to look at what the same insurance carrier or employer paid for the same medical treatment in the past. Or if they don't have an example of that, what another insurance carrier or employer paid for that same medical treatment in the past. The judge can also look at what a private health plan would, would play. Again, that's not a workers' compensation payer. The judge of compensation can look at what a cash payer would pay. Again, not a workers' compensation payer, and generally much less than that which would be charged through to an insurance carrier sometimes. Um, how about what the hospital or provider publishes as a fee or a rate? Remember that one of the tenets of Obamacare and the amendments to it was that every medical provider must produce or print a rate or fee schedule for every uh, treatment that they provide. Uh, usually not a great guide, and do they actually get paid that? No, but at least they have to provide that. Most important for us are the last two here. The judge should consider what would Medicare or Medicaid would pay for the same treatment and what other sources would pay. And that the best source for us and the one that I think is most congruent to our problem set is looking at the personal injury protection fee schedule because New Jersey does have a motor vehicle personal injury protection fee schedule that covers a lot of the same common injuries, you know, orthopedic, neurologic injuries that you're gonna see in your workers' compensation cases. So the judge can look at all of these other payors and what they would pay and say, okay, um, which one of these makes sense? And use that to establish what is usual and customary. Because the truth is that surgeon could put down their bill, hey, I'm charging you $180,000 for this two hour surgery, and my co-surgeon is also charging you $180,000 for this two-hour surgery. But the truth is nobody pays that, right? And certainly not Medicare, Medicaid. Certainly the PIP schedule would never allow that. And so it's not what the employer or the insurance carriers have been billed in the past. It's what they've actually been paid. So they, a judge should look at what's been paid, not what's been billed. Now, 
I want to put this in some context. Um, there are neighboring states with fee schedules. So, for example, the same exact injury and knee meniscal repair arthroscopically performed in New York. Under New York's workers' compensation fee schedule, that would be paid $5,827. Typical New Jersey medical provider would bill in excess of $60,000. In fact, my comparison was a $61,862 bill. It's roughly 10 to 1, maybe a little bit more. For some procedures, though, uh, especially operating room rentals and surgical center room rentals, I see ratios ranging from 12 to 1 to 20 to 1. And so you see these enormous gaps, which is driving um, some cross-border uh, steerage. Uh, you'll see a lot of New York medical providers who are steering their um, patients to New Jersey to have surgeries done in New Jersey for the purpose of trying to bill at New Jersey's higher rate. Now, you can defend these cases. You can defend them many ways, and I'll talk about how we defend them. So when there's no contract, the best way to defend them is obviously you have a contract. And you just say, hello, uh, wonderful medical provider who is claiming that we've underpaid you. Uh, good news, I have a contract in place. Our contract is with, um, with you through your um, preferred provider network. And here's what we've established as the contractual rate for this treatment. And if the treatment is established and causally related to a worker's compensation case, here's what we're going to pay you. So it's very straightforward if there is a contract. But where there is no contract, um, we're going to generally try to reprice the bill to try to get it into that real um, re realm of reality in terms of payment. And generally, our clients are going to be using repricing vendors. Um, and that usually means that we have to be prepared to defend the explanation of benefits. And sometimes we have to present the representative of the repricer to explain, hey, here's why this got repriced this way. And here's um, which um, sort of billing criterion we applied, right? Here's, the, here's how we did this, uh, and bring that forward to the judge of compensation. Now, these cases resolve two ways, a compromise and settlement or a judicial decision. And unfortunately, the judges really don't want to spend their time on these cases. Um, I've had judges tell me things like, hey, I don't want to be a collections agency. Uh, you know, this isn't what I signed up to do. Greg, I actually have injured workers that need attention and need my help, and I don't want to spend all my time fighting on these on these medical billing disputes, right? And I respect all of those positions because they make sense, right? This isn't the mission of the Division of Workers' Compensation uh, to resolve bill disputes. Uh, but unfortunately, that means that a lot of these cases don't get to a trial and don't get um, um, adequately, I think, attention, and so they get kicked down the, on, down the road a lot. Um, all right, let's talk briefly about discovery in these cases, because you should not walk into defending your medical provider claim blind, right? No discovery is allowed in these cases, but you can do motions uh, to open up or get the opportunity for discovery. In every single case that I defend, I file a motion to compel discovery, and I seek answers to specific event interrogatories. What's a specific event interrogatory, specific interrogatories? What does that mean? What am I saying? Well, I'm asking the medical provider to give me a detailed basis, a reason, a rationale for why they should get what they're claiming they are entitled to and owed. Um, I'm putting them to their proofs and saying, I don't want to see what you've billed other employers. I want to see what you were paid, right? So I have the right to say, show me uh, the last for the last year what you were paid for this exact procedure, right? 
And what I want to do is take a look at um, as many payers as possible. I don't just want to look at workers' compensation payers. You know, generally workers' compensation payers actually pay slightly higher than most private health plans, and we certainly pay a heck of a lot higher than Medicare, Medicaid, or the PIP fee schedule, right? So I want to get it from all of those providers. And I also want them to answer specific questions, admitting that they do accept Medicare, Medicaid, private insurance, or PIP fee schedule payments and those patients. I want to establish that so I can make the argument to the judge that that's how their repricing should be done. We always want to focus on what they were actually paid, not what they billed. Providers love to respond to my interrogatories by sending me huge invoices and giant billed amounts. I don't care about that. I want to see what they were actually paid. So uh, that's how we um, you know, sort of serve discovery, and that's what we're looking for. Now, let's talk about the pernicious, predacious problem that we're all facing in New York and New Jersey, cross-border medical claims. So here we have a New York workers' compensation claimant who is being sent across the river to New Jersey. As we see this so often uh, to have a New Jersey um, surgery performed. And typically it'll be in a New Jersey ambulatory center. And there's only like seven or eight of them that are like really bad, nasty offenders that we see all the time. And why they do this? Again, it's that example I already showed you, which is that the New York fee schedule for the same surgery would pay about 10 times less than what the same procedure would cost in New Jersey or be billed at. And so what we're seeing is a giant flood of these types of cases in New Jersey. Lots and lots of filings, lots of disputes about this. Um, we see lots of old treatment dates. I've seen arguments from my adversary saying, hey judge, if you don't address this, New Jersey workers' compensation judge, my client is gonna be treated unfairly. They're not gonna have any redress. Um, what I've seen is counsel for the plaintiffs um, sort of playing judge against judge, saying, hey, a judge so-and-so in so-and-so location is you know, finding that these are in favor of the extraterritorial um, medical provider um, and sort of confusing the issue or trying to lead the judges into some sort of consensus on this. Um, I've also seen a lot of lazy defense counsel that has been um, sort of not understanding really how to defend an extraterritorial um, medical provider claim, even though these are, are pretty common. Now, there is some case law that helps us, um, an appellate level case law. It's called Anesthesia Associates versus Weinstein Supply, which says that these extraterritorial cases, <coughs> excuse me, the Division of Workers' Compensation must have jurisdiction over the underlying claim. That means that the patient that is getting treatment in New Jersey, in order for New Jersey to have jurisdiction over the medical provider claim, that patient should have had a basis to file a New Jersey workers' compensation claim. And we know two things. First, the residency in New Jersey alone is an insufficient basis to file a workers' compensation claim, and treatment in New Jersey alone is an insufficient basis to file a workers' compensation claim. So let me give you an example of how this applies. New York workers' compensation claimant who works in New York and the accident occurs in New York, very common, but lives in New Jersey, gets treatment in New Jersey, and maybe even a surgery, something costly. The medical provider files a claim for some huge amount of money saying, 
Well, we're entitled to our usual and customary fees. What should the carrier do? Well, you've got some good things on your side, okay? First, um, New York has a fee schedule, which in itself states in general ground rule 16, generally speaking, this fee schedule should apply even if the person's in another jurisdiction, New York still retains that jurisdiction uh, to uh, determine what that fee dispute should be resolved. Okay, so that's in there. There's also case law that I can point to. Uh, the case law is the Bauman case uh, versus J&J, &J, which says that New York retains jurisdiction to dispose of a medical fee dispute even where the medical fee occurs in another state. Okay, so you've got some good arguments and those should be raised. In general, we should be prevailing on those types of defenses. Let's talk quickly about some barriers to closing these types of claims, which have become, unfortunately for most of our clients, a, a real challenge to closure. So let's talk about some of them. First, judges are relatively unwilling to meaningfully conference this case. Um, they really do see this as something that's not important, um, something that's not really driving value to the injured worker, and maybe even getting in the way of the judge's actual job and mission, which is to make sure that the petitioners are taken care of in the workers' compensation system. So you've got a lot of bias against really addressing them. The second thing I, I see is parties who are just ready, not ready to conference the cases. I mean, um, adjournments are granted very easily in this jurisdiction, but uh, they're granted extremely leniently in these medical provider claims. I've seen some lazy defense. Right? Defense is not ready to move, it's not serving discovery, it's not pushing on these cases, not filing motions to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction. Sort of saying, hey, I don't see these things really moving, they don't really excite anyone, so there's not a lot of attention paid to them. In the extraterritorial cases, and that's probably about one in five of the workers' compensation cases or medical provider claims that we're defending, I see a lot of waiting on from the Division of Workers' Compensation, kind of waiting for some more appellate direction or some clear direction or maybe some confusion even. And that comes down to this knowledge gap that we have. Um, you know, between the bench and the bar, there really is sort of a lack of understanding of how these cases should move forward. Um, and of course, the last thing is that we know more and more of these cases are going up to the appellate division. In fact, I have got one that is gonna go up in um, early next year. Um, which will help set some more clear guidance. And so what we've been consistently pushing against is a lack of uh, some sort of clear rules and boundaries for the judges to apply. And that sort of led to a lot of cases that, in my opinion, should have been dismissed earlier or sooner. So some takeaways before I turn to questions. Medical provider claims are now about 20% of all cases filed in the division. So. These are on your desk, and these are things that we should be trying to deal with and close. If you have a contract with the provider or a repricer, defense counsel must be prepared to defend the contract or the price adjustment, right? That's just education. That's knowing how to present those proofs, and you should be prevailing on those. Jurisdictional cases should always be defended, and you should prevail on those. And in those, discovery is key to winning your dismissals. Defense counsel has to be aggressive and they have to be your advocates and they have to overcome the barriers of a lack of interest really from the bench in intervening in these cases and moving them along. Um, they really, um, you need to push and you need to find some leverage in these cases so that you can actually get some judicial attention. 
The good news is once you get judicial intention on these cases, then uh, it's relatively straightforward to have a judge sort of approach them and we can move a lot of them forward in that way. All right, I'm opening up the questions panel now. If you haven't typed your question in yet, please type it in now. Um, right now I haven't seen any. I'm thinking that's maybe because attendance is light because really statistically this is like my quietest week of the year, uh, particularly for New Jersey workers' compensation where, you know, the New Jersey courts are so nice. They close uh, for the entire week between Christmas and New Year. So generally speaking, this is a great moment for us and on my practice and the attorneys that are working for me over here. We kind of take our deep breath and we sort of get ahead of things and sort of put things together for next year. Uh, but it is usually a very quiet week in New Jersey. And I'm seeing no questions popping up. And so I'm presuming uh, that everybody wanted to just check in, say hi. Well, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. Uh, next year, we're going to be, um, we've got all new topics and an all new presentation format that we're going to be doing next year for this webinar. Uh, so I will send everyone on this uh, webinar a list of all of our topics and our dates. I'm looking forward to uh, presenting more to you next year. Hopefully I'll be feeling better. Hold on a second. I think I just got a question. Let me see. Okay, we do. Sarah says, Greg, how do you make sure an employer uses an approved provider? Okay, so uh, this is really something that your adjuster, examiner, risk professional, or TPA should be doing. Remember in New Jersey, you have this awesome opportunity to control and direct care. So we should be controlling and directing care to a provider who's within our network. Now, the only time that can't that doesn't happen or can happen um, for a authorized uh, or established workers' compensation case is when the claimant needs emergent treatment, right? Somebody has their arm ripped off in a machine or they get a terrible burn. We're really not expecting them to call the TPA or the insurance carrier and figure out where to go. They're just going to the closest burn surgeon or burn unit or the closest emergency room, right? So. Those are the circumstances where you have truly emergent care, where maybe the person's gonna go and get care that we can't control or direct. But most of these claims would be avoided by just using our approved provider. And that's one of the strengths of a system which we direct and control care. So I hope that answer is helpful to you, Sarah. Steve says, Greg, if we have a New York workers' comp claim where the claimant is treating in New Jersey, can we fight them to pay them at the fee schedule? Yeah, absolutely. You should be paying them at the fee schedule. Uh, New York's fee schedule, again, guideline rule 16 says it does apply to out-of-state, and you should be telling them, hey, we're accepting this as a New York workers' compensation claim. We intend to pay you at the fee schedule rate. Now, they can come back and say, no way, right? And oh, no, I should also mention that the fee schedule does have regional adjustment codes or percentages that can be applied for out-of-state care, so that can be done as well. But they might say, no way. You could say, all right, but let's negotiate what the cost is going to be. So that's something that you should absolutely do, be doing. Don't just assume because the treatment taking place outside of New York that the fee schedule does not apply. All right, um, Steve asked a second question. Do we raise the fee schedule argument in New Jersey or at the board? The answer, Steve, is you raise the schedule discussion with the treatment provider, and you should certainly be letting the board know because you know when these medical bills are coming in, um, they should be submitted to the board. That's how this should be going, and we should be paying them pursuant to the New York fee schedule. Um, you know, the challenge is where the person is affirmatively doing this, and, I, and this is I've seen it in, done in a very nefarious way. And the nefarious way is um, a New York medical provider who, on purpose, is telling their the their patient, "Why don't you come to uh, get your treatment or your surgery in my New Jersey office?" 
um, you know, where the person is not a resident. But where the person is a resident, even in those state, um, in those circumstances, the board still has jurisdiction to determine the fee dispute. It should not be in New Jersey. Um, Miriam says, Greg, what if discovery is denied by a counselor who has treated the injured worker? All right, so I'm confused about that. So we have somebody who's treated our worker. They've submitted a bill to you. And the, you're saying, wait, I'm not going to pay this bill until I understand, you know, um, who you've billed in the past or similar bills, or I'm looking for other forms of payment or proof of prior payments in this amount. And they're saying, no, I'm not providing that to you. I mean, that, that to me is a pretty solid case for you to make a dismissal argument. Judge, I've served discovery on them. I've asked them to provide me with the basics that I would need to analyze their claims against me. They're coming forward and claiming that I'm underpaying them. I asked them to show me what other people have paid them. They can redact the names. I certainly don't care about the names of the individual patients, but I want to see the, the invoices and I want to see the paid amounts. Um, judge, and they're refusing to do that. Judge, you should dispute the, you know, you should deny or dismiss their case. Um, they're not allowing me to fully defend my matter, right? It's just a violation of due process. And you should win on that, Aaron, if they refuse to provide discovery. All right. Uh, Okay, so those are all the questions. I'm glad I was just kind of jabbering on at the end there and all the questions got to pop up. So Sarah, Steve, Miriam, thanks for asking the questions. It does make this more fun and interactive when people do that. All right, and with that, I think we're going to bid adieu to 2022. The next time I'll talk to you will be in 2023. Have a happy new year and a healthy new year, everybody, and see you soon. Thanks for joining us. Bye.